Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James, and it's the first episode of October 2021, so we decided to get a little spooky for you, and we did, we're we going to do a classic horror film that's one of our favorite movies in general all time, The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson, based on the novel by Stephen King, and I'm sure we've all seen this film that came out in 1980. It's an 8.4 on IMDb, and it follows a family who heads to an isolated hotel for the winter where a sinister presence influences the father into violence while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from both the past and the future. Horrific forebodings. Honestly, one of the greatest movies made of all time, in my opinion. It's number 63 on IMDb, 8.4 on IMDb. And it's not Kubrick's best work, but I think it's his most popular and iconic. And it's legendary. It has the legendary status of probably being the most iconic horror movie of all time. I just said iconic. How about another oh. adjective? Criminally iconic. <laughs> <laughs> and even as even as kids, you grow. We grew up, and it was like just hearing our brothers and our family and other people talk about The Shining. Have you seen The Shining? I remember I was always like terrified of just the hype of the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's intense just like, and then when we finally watched it for the first time, I was just horrified from the buildup to watching it for the first time. And it did live up to the hype, especially because we watched it way too young. I don't remember what age we were. We, we were, definitely we were young. We weren't of age at, e not even close. Definitely not. But this movie, it really, it's something special because there are plenty of great horror movies and there are plenty of great movies that have been made, but very few films reach the status that The Shining has where so many people obsess over it. So many people try to figure out what the meanings are, what the clues are, what the secrets are behind it, try to obsess about trying to figure out what everything means, especially like the ending and the whole thing because it's so much different from the book. And very few movies have that power, and this is one of them. Yeah, the ambiguity of The Shining is still a mystery. I mean, it's a ghost story, but also not a ghost story at the same time. The book is a ghost story. You know, the book, it's real possession. You know, it's supernatural elements. And that's the biggest problem that Stephen King has with this adaptation is there's none of that really. It's kind of there, but Kubrick basically made a film that he says is about a family going insane together. I, that's a quote that he says. It's something like that where it's, it can be supernatural, but there are explanations or supposed explanations to everything that's happening or occurring in the film. And there isn't really things like telekinesis like in the book. So when you're referring to the book versus the novel, if you've read the novel, don't use the novel to t try to explain what's going on in the film version because Kubrick really just kept the plot and the characters. Aside from that, he kind of changed the entire story thematically though he really did his own thing and this movie is iconic especially in terms of Kubrick's filmmaking is this is where he really introduced the use of steadicam and I can't remember who the inventor of steadicam I think it was, was Scott Brown um, if that's his name it he, was being used in the mid 70s but yeah. it, this was his newest update to the entire the piece of equipment and, and Kubrick had actually tried to do things like steadicam in the past and it, it has worked to some point but it's still shaky and so I'm, I'm sure he was always dissatisfied with it, and he was always looking for something to make his camera move smoothly and make it not tilt, make it not shake, and to be able to move through environments. And I think this with this movie, 
he clearly found that with the Steadicam operator, and he used it like 90% of his movie is Steadicam. Like, he just went crazy with it. And this, I think, is the biggest moment of Steadicam's introduction to film to the film world. Because plenty of films had used it before, but not to this extent, and not with such powerful imagery as this. I mean, you have shots like the maze, running through the maze, and you have shots like Danny riding his little tricycle toy through the hotel on the carpet that's called the, the wood. big wheel. Big I had wheel. one. <laughs> you still have one. I still do. I, I ride it to work. I ride it every day. <laughs> but riding it on carpet and then wood, carpet and wood, hearing the sound effects. And then also just like a lot of the scariest parts of the movie, he shoots with a slowly moving steady cam. And it's just something about the steady cam movement makes it feel ethereal, makes it you feel like the sense of dread and that you don't have control of the situation that you're seeing. Yeah. And there's so much to get into with this film. I mean, we could do like seven hours on The Shining. And, you know, a lot of people have on YouTube and in blogs and we'll, you know, refer to some of them and talk about some great topics. But before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to share us with your family and friends and become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Patrons get perks like personalized videos, podcast schedules, top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast. And the best perk of all is every single patron, whether you're a $2, $5 or $10 patron, has access to our weekly bonus episodes of the show, which post every single Wednesday. Head on over to our website, Raiders of the Lost podcast to see all of our content, our merch, our custom movie posters. Follow subscribe wherever you're listening and hit the notification bell everywhere and again there's so much to dive into so much to even i don't even sometimes know where to start but i think maybe just starting with wherever you want man the pulp the pop culture importance of this film mm -hmm. it's 2021 this film is still relevant today i mean it was just in ready player one yeah. that movie has an entire segment and the book has an entire segment at the overlook hotel so it's still relevant 40 years today and i'm sure when it came out obviously we weren't alive for 10 years but i'm sure it blew blew up worldwide because it's opening weekend was only six hundred twenty-two thousand dollars, but it only opened up on 10 screens and per screen well, that's a lot it opened up yeah. the same day as the empire strikes back it's a lot per screen yeah it was actually making more per screen versus the empire strikes back and eventually it got it got released nationwide and it ended up making 46 million dollars globally about 45 million us and canada so it became a word of mouth success an immense success actually that adjust for inflation that's about 150 million dollars right now so that's a, definitely a big hit for a low budget movie like I think, this i think it was like a 20 million dollar budget yeah and this film was also ironically critically panned when it was first released and a lot of people just cited it as being too bleak and too dark and not really understanding what Kubrick was doing. And it's one of the most famous examples of over time people have saw it in a new light, watched it over again. And I think this is a movie that definitely gets better every time you watch it. And people, especially critics or, or people who were critical of it, they had their minds changed and they changed their perspectives on what the movie was. And now it is universally claimed. It's Everyone considers this an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, Roger Eber is actually a great example of a critic yes. who was harsh on the film when he first saw it, but changed and re retracted his review basically and ended up putting it in his like top 50 films of all time. Mm -hmm. After, you know, he saw it a few more times and let it, let it like you know, cook in the crock pot for a couple of years because with all of Kubrick's movies, he's so far ahead of the game and ahead of his time with every film he's ever made. And so it usually takes a few years for people to understand his films and appreciate them, which is probably one of the reasons why he's never won an Oscar. Yeah, it's his attention to detail as well and his obsessive craftsmanship, the amount of research he puts into his projects. The reason why he made so few films is because 
he put years of his life into each film before they even went into production. Yeah, he's and like then, Guillermo del Toro, how that story just came out, how he's spent 16 years writing scripts that will never get made into movies. Yeah, exactly. So, and in, in like even Nolan, same thing. He spent 10 years writing Inception. But in Kubrick also, not only with the pre-production and the research phase, but he is considered, he's probably considered the longest shooter in film history for directors, whereas all of his films shot way over budget, they filmed way over schedule, and he's famous, obviously, for using many takes, and uh, he even he makes David Fincher look like Clint Eastwood, the one-take wonder, and he is obsessive about perfecting what he sees, and for example, this film, The Shining, it originally had a 17-week shooting schedule, and they filmed, they ended up filming for 51 weeks, and they filmed for so long that there were multiple movies that were waiting to use the studio that they were using for their filming and one of the movies was actually Raiders of the Lost Ark. So they delayed Raiders of the Lost Ark because he just kept filming and wouldn't stop. And same thing happened with all of his other movies. Like, what are you going to do, kick Kubrick out of the studio? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, yeah, it's like it's the greatest ever. And it's like the perfectionism, the perfectionism he has really shows upon repeat viewings of all of his movies where you see so many new details. You, you, the more you watch it, the more you can see what he was doing. If, if you're smart enough and you, you're really looking for it and you and you actually take the time to analyze it and think about it and as as you're watching it analyzing what's happening not just taking in like Jack acting like a psycho but like taking in like the entire environment the entire set how the camera's moving why it's moving a certain way and everything we're gonna get into a lot of like crazy conspiracies today and all these clues that people will think are like either BS or real. But you, if the one thing you can be sure about Kubrick is if it's in the frame, he meant it to be there. Exactly, and he's a very detailed-oriented director. You can look up online all of his notes and stuff. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply for all of his productions that he does. He destroys a lot of it, obviously, like obviously in 2001 Space Odyssey, destroying all those sets. But the Napoleon movie that he never got to make, he spent years writing notes and designing ideas and, and characters and sets and everything. So you can actually find those books online, those notes. You can find the notes he has for The Shining online. It's really interesting to see how detailed and meticulous he was compared to how a lot of the film... There's this ambiguity nature to it, but also the filmmaking, there's a lot of continuity errors that people find, and the timing is off, and we'll talk about it later on, but... We can uh, talk about it now. Well, Why hold on. Not? Well, hold on. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're let's right. go into right, yeah. it. So there's, this, there's actually this YouTube channel called Collative Learning, and... What is it? Collative Learning. Okay. And so they have a... This guy made a bunch of videos over the last decade, like 
pouring into The Shining, doing a lot of research also. People have been researching this movie for decades. Yeah, there's the famous documentary, Room 237. Yeah, which is a great example of how obsessed people are with this film. And for decades, bloggers and and people have been writing articles and trying to discover new things about it. You know, it's kind of like Ready Player One, like the Easter egg hunt, like what's going on in this movie? (laughs) Because, again, Kubrick is a genius, and he is obsessed with detail and meticulous, and it has a meticulous nature, like you were saying. But I think with this film, what he's trying to do is he wants to, you to question your sanity, but do it subliminally. So he does things in the camera that, and with the sets that you don't really notice while you're watching, but they, they make you think that something's off the whole time, even though the, the sets are huge and there's a lot of daylight going on and the scenes aren't really scary themselves for the majority of the film, but there's something that always seems off about this movie. And That's a great way of putting it. It's things like he'll move... Like a chair behind Jack will move it out of one shot, but a shot later, it's right behind Jack. Like, for example, the scene where Wendy comes to talk to Jack while he's typing. He's like, when I'm in here and you hear me typing, (laughs) that scene behind him, there's a chair. It disappears for a couple shots, even though the camera hasn't moved. It's just cut from Wendy to Jack. The chair disappears, then it reappears. Other shots and scenes where, like, Wendy's walking around the hallways with the knife in her hand, and she looks and sees the dead bodies. Behind her, the lights were fully bright, but then it cuts to to the... skeletons cuts back to her again the lights are a lot more dim and some of them are turned off so he does things like that throughout the film that kind of in your head you don't notice but subliminally in your mind something's going on and it's like those those billboards for postmates where you read and it says all i can think about is burgers but then when you read it again it says all i can burgers for is think about so it's like something's off about it that makes you look twice and that's the entire film yeah there are also a bunch of other continuity errors like in danny's bedroom he has pictures of the seven dwarfs stickers of the seven dwarfs on his door and then you'll see that for the first half of the scene and then for the rest of the shots in the second half of the scene those stickers are gone and it's been replaced with a different cartoon and then there's like that famous shot of when um what's his name Ullman stands up in his office and then he's standing beside his desk and then one of the the spines of one of his books on his desk is the matching color of his pants and it makes it look like he has a he sees like a half mast. <laughs> <laughs> I never noticed that. Oh yeah, it looks like he legit has one, like just popping out right there. And it's like people like to say, "Oh, that's not that's BS," and like I don't know about that, but it's like you have to understand Kubrick was so atten- so crazy about attention to detail that it has to be true. Yeah, so he did this all on purpose. Every shot, like you said, if it's in a frame, it's there on purpose. You can just look up his notes for that, for, for real. But also, like, like moving the chair around and things like that, it makes it feel like the, it makes it feel like the, the film is haunted. You know Rather what I mean? Rather than scaring you with, like, spooky set design yeah. and, like, monsters, it's just there's something off. Yeah. Like, what is off? I can't put my thumb on it, but this film, it's, it's eerie when I'm watching. Like, things don't make sense. That's a great point because the first 20 minutes of the movie, not much happens. Like, they get to the hotel and they take the tour, but it just feels like, you can feel dread and you can feel like something's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, and, I think that's the opening credits yeah. sets that up with the music. Yeah, great, great music, but also just like the way he films it and just like, it seems very professional and polite, but you know that something terrible is going to happen and then, he definitely jumps at you when they're done with the tour. It just cuts to black and it says one month later. And you're like, oh, man, what's going to happen? What happened in one, one month? Well, speaking of the title card, one month, there's a ton of mismatches of time in The Shining, which I think a lot of people, they also think some haters are like, oh, they're continuity errors. Again, this is Stanley Kubrick. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so the timeline, the title cards, there are 10 of them total. And they show whatever they say, it's sort of ambiguous. 
And Kubrick doesn't use dates. He uses like days and times and events. So they go by the interview, closing day, a month later. So it's the interview is for with Jack. Closing day, that starts right after the psychiatrist is with Danny and talking to Wendy. So right after that scene. A month later is after they've done their tour of the Overlook Hotel. And we can assume they've been there alone for one month. And then it goes to Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Monday, Wednesday, just random days, and then it's 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. So if you do from that Tuesday to Wednesday, and that Wednesday is the last day they're there before the killing and everything, that's only about a, it's like a nine-day period of time. But in that period of time, it's like autumn at the maze. You know, there isn't even, the foliage hasn't changed. And then at the end of the week, apparently, there's this wild storm, but they are in Colorado and, you know, weather can switch like a dime, I'm sure there. And I'm sure you can have a crazy blizzard storm coming out of nowhere, but still it seems a little off. So I think a lot of people think that's a continuity error, but it's, but not that a continuity error. That's the wrong thing to say. I think it's just makes the more ambiguous, the mystery of what's going on and what, what the timeline is. It also feels like the time is more important because after a month and then to go for then to go to days of the week and then to times it, it kind of adds suspense to it you know what i mean Something's because gonna happen. time's shrinking and in the tick it's like a ticking clock and once he gets to the times 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. then it's like oh man this is really adding to the dread of the movie itself yeah but i know you're right i never noticed that i think it's just he again he wants you to to not know where you are not know what's going on has it been 9 days or is it like been three months that they've been there and just these days are just random ambiguous days and this mo this movie like you said it's, it feels like there's something off about it and the, the tone of this movie i think no no other movie has ever been able to duplicate or even capture the tone of this movie many have tried but c combining kubrick's filmmaking with the incredible score and music and the pacing and jack nicholson Plus the sets, there's just like, in the way he lights his scenes, Kubrick likes to light his scenes where there's really no darkness at all. All of his movies are like this, um, except for a couple of shots in Eyes Wide Shut in the bedroom. But generally, he likes you to see everything. Like, even when you're outside, like when Tom Cruise is outside in Eyes Wide Shut walking through New York City at night, they shot, so they shot it on a soundstage because when they, they tried shooting it outside and it was too dark and a lot of the film wasn't capturing everything. It was a lot, a lot of it was ending up being black shadows. So... Kubrick reshot it in a soundstage so he could light everything. And the, the Kubrick likes you to see every single thing in the frame. It's very much um, duplicating natural human eyesight where our, size, our eyes are much more sensitive. We can see darks and lows, highs and lows at the same time in the same image and still make clarity out of them. It's called dynamic range. Thank you, dynamic range. And then he, man, he, he did that with his films. And this movie here, it's terrifying. But everything's brightly lit. There's no darkness really in it at all, except for the the skeleton sitting at the dining room table. And so I think that's something that a lot of horror movies, they try to go with the darkness, they try to go super contrasty, they try to go very shadowy, and that works too. But there is something really off-putting about experiencing horror in brightness. Like Midsommar captured that, like daylight and terrible things are happening. It makes you feel like you should be at ease and nothing, nothing can go wrong in the light. It's only like that's we're afraid of the dark. Like the, the evil stuff happens in the dark, not in the light. But I think that's what one of the main reasons why this movie is so terrifying because it is so bright. Yeah. And speaking of, he wants you to see all the details. He wants you to see clocks a lot. There are a ton of clocks in this, and there's a lot of uh, noting the time, especially Halloran. Wendy does it a lot, and 
his his use of time is also off. The continuity seems to be off. So if, there's this great example where when Jack's going crazy, and this is when he's finally going off the edge after he has that fatherly conversation with Danny, and Dan and a scary fatherly conversation, scary fatherly conversation, <laughs> and, <laughs> and also I believe it's after. After oh no no never mind so let me continue mm -hmm. and so she she's watching TV with Danny and then she says she has to go down and see uh, Jack and this is right this is the scene right before the baseball bat and she checks her watch at six thirty and then she goes see Jack and then they have the fight where he's crazy and she hits him and they have the baseball bat and he falls down and then she drags him into the storage room to lock him inside of it and it's about it's set a little before seven Stanley Kubrick's notes say it's six fifty six like there's actually a frame of the kitchen they like a location scout photo that he took and he's, he's like the watch has to say 656 i mean the, the clock has to say 656 so it took her about 26 minutes to get from danny to knock out jack to drag him into the storeroom and then when jack is in there by himself and he's like would well, you go see the snow cat because he just tore, he tore the engine apart and he, and he uh ruined it so you can't drive it and so she goes and checks the snow cat and obviously you can't drive it and it's whatever he did to the engine and then it cuts to the title card and the title card says 4 p.m so things like that, it's like it doesn't, doesn't make, make any sense, sense, but also he's doing it on purpose. It's, it's very meticulous to make you feel like you don't know what's going on, to make you, like I say, subliminally, subliminally go insane as yeah. a viewer. That's genius. And he's not explaining everything that's happening in, in detail. He's showing you things that kind of lead you on a false trail and make you feel like you're disorientated. Disoriented, and it's just— No, I like disorientated. Let's use that. <laughs> disorientated. <laughs> and um, this movie— I mean, we can just talk about how Jack is so crazy and blah, blah, blah. But I want to talk about... Let's just start with the fun stuff real quick. Go for it. You got want, a list? Yeah, I want to talk about all the hidden meetings that Kubrick put into this movie. Well, actually, before we can do, do that, can, can we do one quick thing? Well, let's, not quick, but I just... Yeah, let's do it. Because I think... Let's do it. I want to get this out of the way before we get too deep get into it. Get it off your chest, man. So the music. The music yeah, 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 of yeah. The Shining, I think, is maybe the most underrated aspect of the film that people overlook and they don't really understand or appreciate it too much and so there are a couple of original tracks that were produced by wendy carlos and rachel elkind and wendy carlos was a pioneer in synthesized sounds back then and machine made music she also did tron and a clockwork orange so she was using early synthesizers so that opening song that that's her and rachel elkind but they only did i think three tracks for the entire song the rest of the entire score Kubrick used classical music similar to how he did with 2001 A Space Odyssey, but he used Krzysztof Penanetsky exclusively, who's a Polish composer. And so this music is already his music, but it fits perfectly into the world of The Shining and the ambience of the film that he was creating. And it helps with the ambiguity of the hotel. It makes it feel really creepy. It seems like he uses the music to act as the soul, in a way, of the Overlook Hotel, like this, this horrible ghost-like horror hotel that you can't escape. So in that original music, does it have like that that scratching? It's all, it's all like, like that. So I, I if you should actually, if you're listening to this and you like classical music, watch like a orchestra perform Pendaneski's uh, music. Mm -hmm. It's pretty insane because all the movements in experimentation that he was doing with instruments, for example, using strings as percussion instruments, but like plucking them and yeah. scratching them and scraping them. So he all the sounds that you hear in The Shining was music that he had already composed and wow it works perfectly for the movie and so there's actually a modern composer who Peninetsky is one of his idols and he actually worked with and it's Johnny Greenwood so oh. if you listen to There'll Be Blood watch, this, watch the movie obviously but listen to the score 
it's very similar to Penn and Nancy Scott's style with the experimentation, you know, the plucking, the scratching, the, the just the use of, again, of, of string instruments as percussion. Also, and, Johnny Greenwood's first uh, album as composer, it's not for a movie, but it's, it's it sounds just like that. But he, and he actually worked with Penn and Nancy in 2012. They, they uh, collaborated with each other. And uh-huh. so I think that, again, There Will Be Blood is a, a modern film that brilliantly uses the style of Penanetsky. But without the Penanetsky music, I don't know if it works as well in this. The film works as well to build suspense, to create horror, to create dread, because there are so many long scenes in this movie with like minimal dialogue, like scenes like Jack typing. And right before Wendy comes to talk to him, he's like, it's like a 15 second shot of him just typing. But with the Penanetsky music and the strings building and building and building, and then the sharp, like the, the sharp bang at the end, right before Wendy gets to the desk, without that, it's not the same. Well, yeah, it's the mood. Some filmmakers, they know how to create a mood better than anyone else, and Kubrick's one of those. And, like, crafting the mood by... He understands, like, he probably had it in his head, like, he had that music in mind, I'm sure. And he crafted the imagery in his head knowing, if I film it like this, with that song playing at this certain point, it will create the right amount of tension that I need to scare the audience and put them on edge. And only a certain, only a few filmmakers are able to do that by understanding the... The combination of music with imagery, I mean, you know, just like even like Edgar Wright with the great music he picks for his songs, creating a tone that goes with the imagery that you're crafting is so important. Imagine how big his brain is and like the photographic memory he must have had to to just know an entire composer's work and then using just bits and pieces of some songs in different areas of a movie to create a story full of dread and suspense. And he didn't have Spotify to scroll through. He had to listen on vinyl records. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. But yeah, definitely check out Penanetsky's films. Christoph Penanetsky, his, I mean, his uh, composition, it's it's intense. And then watch live performances. It's really interesting to watch. That's like the, uh, that, that sounds fascinating. I got to check it out. I'm definitely be into that. But this movie, like the mood and the tone and the dread is what makes it. And that's exactly why it works because of the music. Yeah, he uses like 20 of his songs in the movie. That's amazing. I did not know that. Thank you for teaching me that. Hey, man, I just wanted, I thought to, I knew I a wanted, lot about I wanted, to, I wanted to do some stuff for you in this episode that <laughs> kind of surprised you. And I think I just did. A favor to me? <laughs> <laughs> You're too kind. But no, when you think of There Will Be Blood in Your Head, it's like, oh my God, it's very similar to The Shining. Yeah, absolutely. Just more modern. Yeah, and the master and yeah. stuff. Yeah, for sure. And, right, and, and we're not big, we're not musicians, so we're probably talking out of our ASS a little bit, but I don't want to go too much on the music because I don't know much about it. Hey, you did great. Thanks, man. I appreciate I'm, it. I'm impressed. I'm sure. To me, I feel like you know about music. I'm kind of like a, a great You listen player. to Hans Zimmer. <laughs> <laughs> I know classical music. I, I play Interstellar in my car all the time. <laughs> All right, let's talk about that thing you wanted to talk about. Yeah, the hidden stuff. Let's do it. Or do you want to get into our sponsors first? Uh, we got some time. We're only 26 minutes in. This is going to be a long episode. All right. Well, actually, let's let's head into our sponsors. You might yeah. as, We might as well. So if you're watching on YouTube or on social media, you may have noticed that Anthony and I have some brand new laptops on our desks. These are courtesy of LG. They are the 17-inch LG Gram Ultra Lightweight Laptops. The cool thing about these, they have a 16 by 10 aspect ratio versus 16 by 9, which means more vertical space and so much more space to work on for editing and referring to our notes. These laptops are shockingly light. The displays are exceptional. Anthony watches movies on these every single night of his life. That's right. We'll put links in our bio for the LG Gram 16 and 17-inch models on YouTube. Thank you, LG, for sponsoring the show and for these fantastic laptops. And we have another sponsor for all you writers or people who are interested in getting into screenwriting. We have teamed up with Arc Studio Pro, the most efficient, streamlined, and elegant screenwriting software on the market They've teamed up with us to offer this very special deal. Follow the link in this YouTube video. 
to get $30 off your subscription with Arc Studio Pro. They have all sorts of perks for their premium subscribers, including apps for your desktop or phone, online collaboration with co-writers, so it's like you're using Google Documents with a friend, super helpful outlining tools, revisionist management, and links to feedback. The premium version only costs $99 per year and take off $30 with our link, and that is a huge deal. For anyone who's interested in screenwriting, the format and the way your script looks is vital to it being seen by other people and being approved. So you've got to get on to Arc Studio Pro to make sure your script looks correct. So again, follow the link in our YouTube bio and head on over to Arc Studio Pro to start writing today. All right, now let's get into your hidden imagery that you're dying to talk about and I would love to talk about as well. So why don't you, why don't you take it away, Anthony? Thank you for the setup. <clears throat> so there are a lot of uh, hidden meanings and symbolism that Kubrick put into this movie and obviously some of it's famous. I think some of it's a little lesser known too, but I think the most obvious one is the allusions to Native American genocide in America. Um, and there's so much production design, set design used in this film that alludes to this and including, you know, just the art design of the hotel, the sets, all that artwork, um, the canned food in the pantry behind um, Halloran and then behind Jack inside of the pantry. Um, the fact that the hotel was built on top of a Native American burial ground. Um, also, what one of my favorite parts is that Wendy and Danny, they oftentimes wear the colors red, white, and blue, especially in the first half of the movie. They are always wearing a combination of those colors. And even Danny has, you know, a, a shirt that has stars and stripes on it. Ullman, um, when you have that scene with him when he's giving the tour, he's also wearing red, white, and blue. And his, his shirt even has red, red and white stripes on it. So those are... He also has an American flag on his desk, and there's an American flag inside the hotel. So those are obviously pointing to America. And then when you combine that with the Native American imagery, it's clearly a parallel to the genocide of the Native American peoples in the early stages of America's history. And it's just fascinating. It's an amazing way to go about it because not one person says a word about it. It's not anything to do with the story. But I think that Kubrick, he wanted to put metaphors to that in this film to just make people think about the movie in a different way yeah and if you want to see like all the crazy research that's been done the documentary room 237 it's a great watch it's like probably a great double feature to watch the shining and then watch room 237 mm -hmm. some of it's obviously like full of like conspiracy theories and stuff like that but some of it does go over the real sim symbolism and i think one of my i think my favorite hidden image in this movie is um the frosted flakes cereal box so the whole movie you can look at it as a ghost story or you can look at it as this family that's going insane together. You can look at it as a, a abusive father and a son coping with that in terms of Danny. Um, but I love how there's the shot a few times of the Frosted Flakes box. And obviously Danny's imaginary friend is called Tony. And Tony, you could say, is representation in a way of the shining that Danny does. But also, you know, kids just have imaginary friends. He doesn't seem like a, he has many friends. and So he's like you. I got more friends than you. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> One. <laughs> just kidding. And so <laughs> and so there's the scene where we were just talking about where Wendy traps Jack in the store container. And in the film, Stanley Kubrick is cutting it with Danny up in the hotel apartment that they live in at the for the time being. And he's apparently, you know, using his shining powers to watch what's going on downstairs in the kitchen with Wendy talking to Jack through the door. And right behind Wendy, there's a Frosted Flakes cereal box. 
Really? And it's pointed right at them, and Tony the Tiger's on the cereal box. So you can say that if if you go through the go through the belief that there's no supernatural anything in this film, and it's all hallucinations, it's all in their minds, they're all going crazy from cabin fever, they're all having hallucinations. Danny's making things up in his head to cope with the the abuse from his father and the potential sex, sexual abuse, which we'll get into in a little bit. If you go through that route, maybe Tony is actually. A represent maybe the Tony the Tiger box is there to show that Danny's actually in the kitchen somewhere hiding listening to the conversation rather than the shining if if the shining's not real. That's genius. So Tony and Tony. Yeah. That makes total sense. Tony Tony the Tiger. So he so he put all these clues to hint that maybe it's all not real. And yeah, that, that's there's just that's one example. Yeah. There's stuff like that throughout the entire film. And again, that YouTube channel Collaborative Learning, they've made a ton of videos over just the last decade, like breaking down shot by shot everything that's going on in The Shining like this. And there's so much attention to detail like in terms of the framing of shots like in the scene in which Halloran and Danny have ice cream and Halloran is ex explaining Shining to him. Uh, so there's two shots. The there's the first shot I want to talk about is when Wendy's still there and then Do and Halloran's asking him, hey, is it okay if we get ice cream? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And right on the wall right behind Danny and the three characters are in the frame, but only behind Danny on the wall are a set of knives which are pointing downward and they are pointing directly at Danny's head. And then in the next scene when they're sitting at the table and Doc and, and Halloran's explaining Shining, there's another set of knives on the wall behind Danny. This time there's like seven of them and they're all pointing down at Danny's head like an inch above his head from the frame. And this is obviously foreshadowing the dangers that he will um, Im imminently encounter, and the threat to his life. The story is going to have on his on his on himself, and it's just I've I've had conversations with people like, oh, it's an accident. Like they didn't know that was going to that. That's not what they're doing. It's just a kitchen. They're setting up the kitchen to make it look like a kitchen. It's like it's low no. IQ stuff right there. Everything is in the frame for a reason. Stanley Kubrick would not look at that frame and be like. Oh, I wonder why there are knives there. I mean, I guess <laughs> I guess we'll leave them in. I, I mean, I, they're not hurting anyone. Like, let's just leave them in. No, he put them there on purpose. It's Dude, there for a reason. He has every watch set to whatever time he wants to, pertaining to whatever scene he's shooting. He's very meticulous and detailed. Another great example of shots that sh foreshadow Danny in imminent danger and murder about to happen is every time we see the iconic elevator doors opening with the red blood pouring out hundreds of gallons of it down the hallway every time that comes up what's a cross cut with a shot of danny with his eyes wide open screaming and so it's always back and forth back and forth and if you look at the shot of the elevator it kind of looks like a face it has these two like eye looking things on top of both the doors and when the doors open up it looks like a mouth. Open wide. So the, it's definitely a great metaphor of what's going on in Danny and Danny's head or the danger he's facing from his father, Jack. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it also, you could say that the, the blood is uh, the hotel. So the hotel is alive. It, it if is, you go with the supernatural yeah, route. It is alive and it shines. That's how, I, that's how I view the movie. And so that blood pouring out of it is, is like the blood of all its victims of its past, including the burial ground. It's, it's uh, built atop. So that's what all that blood is from, I think. So from all the horrible things that have gone on there, plus the the site it's built upon, combine all that blood together, and that's what it is. Yeah, the Overlook Hotel. I would love to look at that as an actual character in the film because there's so much going on in in the film The Shining. The Overlook Hotel's exterior was filmed at the Timberline Lodge at Mount Hood in Oregon, and Stanley Hotel, the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, 
was actually used was the inspiration for Stephen King's best-selling novel, The Shining. I think he stayed a night there and oh, was wow. inspired by the hotel. If you look at it, it looks very similar to the, the what you know the Overlook Hotel looks like inside, like that mountain range, but just like all the flatness around it, and mm-hmm. just secluded. Um, the Overlook Hotel, it's completely secluded. It, where they say it's twenty-five million, I mean twenty-five <laughs> miles. <laughs> 25 miles of highway until like the next town or something like that. Yeah, which gets covered up with snow every winter. It's it's beautiful, um, but the isolation is severe. And, you know, when Jack goes there for the interview with Ullman, it seems like it's something he wants. Because Jack's such a fascinating character. You know, when, when we're first introduced to him, you know, he's, he's going to that interview. And he has this weird, it's hard to describe his, his mood or his personality. It's It's like... He's acting nonchalantly, but like he's forcing it. And he's like kind of every smile he puts on his face, it, it seems like a lie. It seems like he's just pretending like he doesn't care what's going on. He's forcing himself to be relaxed. And that's the entire mood I get from Jack from the interview. Then also the card ride up. The card ride up, you can already tell that his wife and son are just driving him nuts inside. He's like, yes, yep. uh, mm-hmm. well, you should have ate your lunch. You should have had your breakfast. He's like doing like the crazy Jack smile like to it through his teeth. Like, But in his head, you can hear like he's probably in his head like, I want to chop them up with an axe. So like, <laughs> was he going to do this inevitably that Jack Torrance want to kill his family at some point? So he, I, the way I interpret it is that it's because he's not drinking. He's not. He hasn't been able to drink for five months, and I think that's adding to his inability to deal with anything and anyone around him. And so he rather he hasn't been able to relax in so long. He's just wound up so tight that he's like on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Oh, that actually reminds me of another great instance of the ambiguity of time in this film and how it doesn't make sense. And it seems like there are continuity errors, but again, this is Kubrick doing things on purpose to mess with you subliminally. So. Um, during the psychiatry appointment when she comes over to the house to inspect Danny after he faints, that's when Wendy tells her about how five how Jack broke Danny's dislocated arm. Dislocated shoulder. Dislocated shoulder. Sorry, thanks for fixing that. People will be like, did you even see the movie? <laughs> and how because of that, he's now sober and he hasn't drank in five months. And then Jack at the interview, he says, five months of peace, of peace is all I need. <laughs> and then... So it cuts to then later on, we're at the Overlook Hotel and we have that title card one month later. So we can assume it's been five months since he was, he's was he been sober and they got the job and they're there at the Overlook Hotel. Another month passes and the first time that he interacts with Lloyd in the gold room, he says, here's to five months being on the wagon and really it should be six months. So shouldn't it be six months of being on the wagon because it's five months sober plus one month of being at the Overlook Hotel? I think he says. I think he said that because he he probably lied about going sober the first month. Maybe that's what I would say is that he was actually secretly drinking for the first month, or maybe he's been drinking the whole time he's been at the Overlook and he acts like he hasn't been. He's not a trustworthy protagonist. But either way, it's another example of the time doesn't make sense in this film. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. And then there's um. There's also the Apollo moon landing hints in this movie. It's all, all BS. So people, conspiracy theorists like to think that Stanley Kubrick fa- filmed a fake moon landing for NASA. We've been to the moon, everybody. We've yeah, been to the moon. First of all, we've been to the moon several times. It really happened. And I mean, you have that great defense, you, that great point of if if we didn't go the, to the moon, then why didn't Russia stop trying? Oh, yeah. Well, no, that's not the point. It's... um. So this is just proving the moon landing through just logic. Common sense. So 
if everyone's been to the moon, landed things on the moon, every, a lot of countries have landed stuff on the moon. We can see the moon. Uh, other countries have satellites that can see the moon, what's going on. They can see the surface of the moon. You can see the tracks. You can see the gear that's been left there. Why hasn't anyone been like, since we were in this crazy space race with Russia, why didn't Russia go, oh, well, they actually didn't go on the moon. Here's the photos. There's no moon site. Yeah, no one's yeah. ever been there. There are no fo- footprints. There's no rover tracks. Nothing's been there. Yeah. Why, why not? Why did we win the space race then? It, you it really make think any we, sense. we tricked the Soviets into giving up the space race? It's yeah. because the Soviets lost because they couldn't decide on one specific model of what kind of rocket ship they're going to use. They, were, you know, yeah, poor well, leadership. That's another. But so, but so, anyway, so people began rumors began coming out that Kubrick filmed it, and Kubrick knows he didn't he didn't film it. But he, this whole all these hints he put in this movie, I believe, were a way of him just like poking fun at it, tongue in cheek. And adding fuel to the fire of those people, you know, of conspiracy theorists. And so there's obviously that famous sweater Danny wears where it says it's it's the sweater of the Apollo 13. And then also the that famous carpet pattern, it actually perfectly matches the Apollo launching pad. That's exactly what it looks like, that design. And then also room 237. Now, that, that room is actually a different number in the book, but Kubrick changed it to 237. People speculate that he changed it to room 237 because the distance from the Earth to the moon on average is about 237,000 miles. And so these are him just pointing putting out little clues to, I think, mess with people and get them to obsess over the fact that did he fake it did he not fake it did it really happen or did it never happen yeah well i I have another reason why it's to debunk it so the room number in the book is 217 changed to 237 obviously the timberline lodge located on mount hood in oregon was used for the exterior shots again and they switched it they didn't use room 217 because future guests at the lodge might be afraid to stay there and a non-existent room 237 was substituted in the film so they created room 237 because they didn't want an actual room to be used at the real hotel because it would prevent people from going inside and staying there and be scared and they'd probably be a forever unoccupied hotel room yeah it would just remind them of that scene with the the dead woman yeah but ironically it's the most rec- 217 is the most requested yeah. room at the hotel yeah they would have been a huge tourist attraction yeah they didn't realize that but that's really why well that's what you know i found the real real reason why yeah. there's also another crazy uh, theme of symbolism that i re- recently discovered in it's Kubrick alluding to the Holocaust, and specifically the year 1942. And 1942 is when the Nazis started um, launching um, prison camps. Uh, and then they actually had prison camps for years before World War II started. Is that the year of the ballroom photo at the end of the movie? No, I believe that's it's July 4th, 1920. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, 28. But um, so the number 42 is seen multiple times. So. At the hotel, there are exactly 42 cars in the parking lot. And then in the apartment on the TV is a, a movie called Summer of 42 playing. There's also a transition between scenes when if you pause it, you'll it's, Kubrick dissolves in an editing technique from um, people to suitcases. So the people dissolve into suitcases. And this alludes to um, when Jews were sent on trains to prison camps, their luggage was taken by the Nazis and thrown away. And that's all that was left of them was their luggage and their personal belongings. Also, the eagle was a, a, a major symbol of many of their icons, that famous eagle with the, the flat wings. 
it's actually an ancient symbol, but they the Nazis used multiple ancient symbols on their in their iconography, and you can see the eagle the eagle emblem is located on the German typewriter that Jack uses. There's actually they Kubrick switched out the typewriters a couple of times in the movie, so if you look closely, he actually uses different typewriters, and they're even different colors. So the white one has an eagle eagle emblem on it, and then also in the first morning after the cut of uh, after the supercut of one month later. When Wendy brings Jack breakfast in bed, he has a T-shirt and there's an eagle on the T-shirt, alluding to the eagle. Pretty cool. So all those you could say could be representative of the Holocaust, specifically the year 1942. There's another great um, piece of symbolism in this film that I would love, love to talk about. So the gold room, the ballroom. Oh yeah. In the book, this doesn't exist. And the thing about this this gold room. It looks like it couldn't fit inside the hotel. Like when you look at the exterior shots of the hotel, it looks like this room is way too big to be a part of it. And there's a lot of spatial discrepancies in the movie, which I want to talk about later. Yeah, especially the main room. And how like yeah. it, it doesn't, none of, the layout doesn't make sense. The blueprints don't make sense. Like some rooms would lead to nowhere. But the gold room specifically is not in the book. And I love the bar scenes with Lloyd and the parties. Those are some of the best scenes in the entire film when he's talking to Lloyd at the bar. And... It's believed that Kubrick was making a reference to the Federal Reserve in America and bankers in general and how powerful they've become over the currency of the dollar bill. Because what's the dollar bill backed by right now? Gold. No, not anymore. Well, it used to be gold yeah, back then. exactly. Yeah. Well, you're a smart kid. Thanks. Nice job. So the <laughs> dollar bill used to be backed by gold. So your dollar bill would have a, a thing printed on it that said backed by gold or whatever like that, by the gold reserve. So like it was an equal exchange of whatever the dollar was worth, the bill was worth to gold. Now our dollar bills have a stamp, nothing to do with gold. It just says that this is legal tender for past dues. Fugazi, Fugazi. Yeah, it doesn't exactly, exist. Exactly. There's nothing backing the dollar bill except you could say the strength of the economy of America. That's what backs the dollar bill basically. It's, it's, hearsay, it's hearsay, you know. It's non-existent. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a piece of that's the stock fabric. Market. The stock market is nothing. So he created the gold room to represent that. And what he when what's so great about it is the scene where he's talking to Lloyd, he pulls out his two tall he's like, I got two twenties in my back pocket. And he pulls them out and Lloyd's like, Oh, your money's no good here. Which you think is like, oh, it's because he's Jack Torrance, but really it's literally his money's no good there because the twenties, it was still backed by gold, but the new modern dollar bills that he has. It wouldn't work, and it wouldn't be cash. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't, wouldn't be legal tender at that time. Oh wow! And then another addition is the ball at the end of the photo. The last photo is the Fourth of July ball. And also, Stanley Kubrick was a huge investor in gold. And some other interesting things about those scenes is Jack always asks for bourbon, but do you know what Lloyd gives him to drink? Whiskey. Yeah, he gives him yeah. Jack Daniel's whiskey. Yeah. Which is odd because Jack Daniel's whiskey is not bourbon. I know people might think there's a difference. Yeah, it's close, but yeah, yeah. it's very different. So is Jack hallucinating the entire thing? Are there really no ghosts? Is the, does the gold room not exist? Is obviously does Lloyd exist? Is he hallucinating the whole thing? Is him drinking Jack Daniel's a representation of him like drinking himself in his mind? <laughs> Something like that. Well, I mean, we could get into. Let's go. Let's dive deep in there. Let's dive deep in that subject. Uh, in so terms who is of, Jack? Of what's real or who's Jack? Of who's well, I I like to look at this movie as it supernatural and uh -huh. everything you see in terms of supernatural is real, and that The Shining is real. Danny in Halloran Shining is real. That's how I view the movie. I think I've always thought that, but sometimes I think it's like teetering on the edge of fifty fifty because it seems like a lot of things can be explained by real real things happening. 
But also some things seem unbelievable and kind of have to be explained by supernatural. Like, is the shining real? Like, how does Halloran know what the shining is? And how are they communicating if that's not a real ability, not a real supernatural power? Like, what would that conversation be going for that reason for? Yeah, so I, I think it is. it has to be real, the shining, because of Halloran's interaction with Danny and or is it just like intuition that they have with each other, like a connection, like a like an emotional connection or something? No, I just think the way it's it's drawn out and explained by Halloran, it has to be real. And also in how the way does... in the way Danny gets Halloran to come to the hotel by showing him the imagery. Yeah, and he's he's basically signaling out to Halloran from far away, which yeah. is why he's like has that episode. Yeah, I just think Kubrick liked to put all these hints around the film to make you question it is what it is what it is. And that's how good he is at it. But in terms of Jack, of Jack and Grady, so Jack and Grady have that iconic conversation in the bathroom, and Grady, when he was cleaning up his sleeves, and Jack recognizes him, he says, you were the caretaker here, and you chopped up your wife and daughter in little bits, and and at first Grady acts coy and innocent, but then he reveals that he did actually do that, and that he was acting in the best interests of the hotel. Because like we said earlier, the hotel is alive. And the way I like to look at this movie is that Jack is actually Grady. They're the same soul. And Grady, when he died, he was reincarnated into Jack. And the way you can find evidence for this are multiple reasons. So and this and this explains why Jack is in the photo yeah. at the end. That's, so that's, that's why the only he's the explanation, whole. really. No, there's multiple. No, but, but I mean, oh, in terms of, of why, why he's in the photo. In the photo. Yeah, yeah, I was like, I got evidence, mother effer. <laughs> <laughs> so the that explains the photo at the end. And so when Jack and Wendy talk in the bedroom, when she brings him breakfast and she's telling her him how great this place is and how fast you get used to such a big place, and he says, he says, I love it. I couldn't be happier. And he says. The first time I came here for the interview, it felt like I, it felt like I'd already been here before, and he like knew, and he felt like he knew the halls. And so, it, if he lived in the, if he was in the hotel in a past life, that would explain that. Also, when he goes to the bar and interacts with Lloyd, he calls Lloyd his by, by name without Lloyd introducing himself. He already knows that the bartender's name is Lloyd. So how would he know that if he? didn't already live here in a past life that bartender Lloyd from the 20s was probably the bartender and when Jack was there as Grady knew Lloyd and then best bartender <laughs> <laughs> and so what I'm saying is that he was Grady he killed his family in that past life as Grady and then he was reincarnated into this new body as Jack Torrance and so he's living out the same destiny he had in the previous life. Yeah, and Jack, he's a very unsatisfied person in his life. His his behavior at first seems so ambiguous. And again, he's like forcing himself to be like nonchalant about everything. He says that he's a school teacher, but that was just to pay the bills. He wants to be a great writer. But he's an absolutely unhinged character versus the empathetic version in the book. So in the book... I think, well, I probably won't spoil it, but he's not like he is. We can talk about it. So, in, yeah, in the book, he's basically actually possessed by the hotel, where you could argue that he's not being possessed at all by the hotel in the, in the movie. And it's just a, a mental breakdown in a way. Do you want to talk about all the differences from book to film? I, th I have a, a list of them that we can talk about. How about we go into our intermission? And oh, then yeah. We'll do the list. Sounds so great. Let's do our intermission. We'll take That's a break. That's a great idea. And then we'll 
go into that. So let's start with our movie quote competition. I have one from a fan and one from me. So this is from Tom Feakin. Now, now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You want to be fooled. <laughs> this is the prestige. Correcto. Cutta. And then this one's for me. Not that I condone fascism or any ism for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should not believe in an ism. He should believe in himself. I feel like I just watched this. You did. Oh my God, what is it? Oh man, I just watched this. Say it again. <laughs> not that I condone fascism or any isms for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should believe should not believe in an ism. He should believe in himself. Oh my, I can't think of it. I'm stumped. Ferris Bueller. Oh man, we just watched it last <laughs> week. Oh man, that's a good one. Okay, here's my quote. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Fistful of dollars? Nope. <laughs> um, it's not a southern voice. I think I said it a little southern. You keep doing southern voices. It throws me off. I'm not a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> we know. <laughs> okay. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Sounds like a Nick Cage line. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's the Joker and Batman. Oh, man. Yeah, it's Jack. Good one, man. He says it to Bruce. Nice. <laughs> you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? <laughs> Give me a Jack impression. <laughs> All right. Guess this movie release year. Mars Attacks. 1999. 96. Ah, oh, man. Jack is in that movie as well. It's a Jack-themed intermission, huh? <laughs> Who designed... No, here's here's my year. Easy Rider. What year? What year did the film Easy Rider come out? Yes, that was the question. Well, you kind of like said like, who designed Bueno here? Easy Rider. <laughs> <laughs> Roll back the tape. That's exactly what you said. Um, 1972. 69. 69. Close. Wow. Close. It's an old movie. Very. All right. Time for a movie pop quiz time. Let's hear it. Shelley Duvall, who plays Wendy in the film, played a main character of a comic book strip. I know it. That was first turned into a cartoon and then was adapted into a film. Also, was released in 1980. What was it? He likes spinach a lot. It's <laughs> Popeye. Yes. Nice job. <laughs> Thanks. Good question, though. Played by Robin Williams. Yes, sir. Underrated movie role for Those him. are his real forearms, too. <laughs> <laughs> Who directed that? I think it might have been... I think it might have been Tim Burton, maybe. I can't remember. Nah, I... Popeye? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know, man. Who knows? Nobody. We'll never know. <laughs> we'll never look it up. Okay, here's my pop quiz. Who designed the Shining poster? This yellow one next to me? Yeah. Andy Warhol? Nah. So this guy, he actually, he's the most famous title card designer in film history. He designed like lots of Hitchcock's movies, credit opening credits, and... You know, some of the most famous ones in history. And they designed the poster for this. What's his name? Saul Bass. Uh, I thought you didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just a guy. I honestly thought of, like, who was a popular artist in the late good 70s guess. and 80s. Good yeah. guess. Thanks, man. I was wrong. All right, who's our biggest hater of the week? Who we got? Oh, I got a couple. Got a couple? We got some real ones? I and... got one that you're going to be glad I put on. All right, cool. Let's hear it. It's a real one. It's a real one? Yeah. Yeah, we got a couple this week. So I posted a clip of... Drive. You posted a clip of Drive in the Getaway, in the opening of the of the film. And he drives a Chevy Impala, 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And then uh, we'll feed after midnight. So clearly a Gremlins fan. I mean, I love Gremlins, but not that much. <laughs> he wrote awful, awful car chase scene. He's driving an automatic. The sound was dubbed into a manual car. That ended the movie for me. Watched the original. So I commented back. So does Vin Diesel really drive cars off buildings? It's just a sound effect. I don't think he understands the point of the of the car too. It's not to have like the coolest car or the fastest car. He's not trying to get in a car chase. The whole point of that using the Chevy Impala is to be inconspicuous to not get in a car chase. But Shannon bumped up the engine to three hundred horsepower in case he gets in a car chase. No, no, he's upset about the sound effect of the of it. They used the sound effects of a manual car. Because then he wrote, you're missing the point. The car was an automatic. Then they dubbed a manual car sound. Why would anyone do that? Lazy and pathetic. And it's hey, like, dude, it's, it's a movie. A movie. <laughs> it's a sound effect. Get over I it. I thought you said he was mad that it was a Chevy Impala. No, no he's, he's mad that they subbed the sound from he's a He's probably manual. mad that it's a Chevy Impala, too. Yeah. He's just mad at everything. Something like that you can't please, man. No. No. And then we have Colin King on our poster giveaway video that we just posted. He wrote, if I don't win, I'm unsubscribed. <laughs> JK, JK. And then we have, oh, this one's funny. Nelson Cornejo wrote, okay, seeing you guys for the first time on YouTube. It's like seeing the same person, but one doesn't have glasses. Can't handle it. Therefore, unsubscribed. <laughs> oh, yeah, I wore glasses a couple episodes ago. <laughs> Those are them. All right, we have two supporters of the week. They are both excellent five-star reviews, which were left on Apple Podcasts on iTunes. Thank you so much. So the first one, Zachary Z, best podcast out there. I've listened to every episode. Hopefully not those early ones. Those are bad. <laughs> and honestly, I can't say enough good things about it. Fantastic movie podcast. 10 out of 10 would recommend. 10 Appreciate out, 10 it. 10 out of 10. And then FGIG2924. Unsubscribed. JK, I love this podcast. I started watching these guys on YouTube when they first started. I love how they have adapted and diversified each episode to keep things fresh. Every month they get better and better, and I love it. I love their insight and the amount of research they do for each movie, actor, director, and composer. I listen to them when I'm at work, and their jokes definitely make me laugh out loud. Great job, guys. <laughs> Unsubscribe. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, That's a great F. Jig. Review. You're the best. Thanks appreciate for the it. review, guys. On this day in film history, today's October 4th. Red Dragon was released in 2002. Trick or Treat was released in 2009. Gravity, released in 2013. Joker and Dolomite is My Name, released in 2019. In 1895, Buster Keaton was born. And happy birthday to Susan Sarandon and Christoph Waltz. And for my streaming recommendation, Fast Times at Ridgemont High just got put on Amazon Prime. My streaming recommendation is The Host. It's a great South Korean monster movie. Directed by the great Bong Joon-ho. It's super funny. It's super entertaining. And the creature design is awesome. Check it out. Yeah, I remember you showed me that movie. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it was, it was my first movie that I'd seen of his. Cool. All right, let's get back into The Shining. And so what did you want to talk about that were, you, you brought up a list of some sorts? A list of... Did I bring up a list? Did you say something about a list? I don't of, know. No, hold on. Ready? A list of comparing the book to the novel. Okay, book to film. Okay. Yeah. So... Yes, thank you for reminding me. I have uh, the list is right in front of me. <laughs> so just look I was at like your scrolling sporadically your like screen. A, oh my god, he, he wants me to pull up a list. What kind I of was, list? I was not prepared for this. I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> so, like you said earlier, the book is different from the film, uh, especially Jack's character, but also a lot of the story itself. And Stephen King infamously hates this movie. When he watched it, he was not a big fan of it, and. He didn't like it. He disliked it so much that he actually produced his own miniseries of a new adaptation of it 
I think it was three parts that was very faithful to the novel he wrote. And he and Kubrick just didn't get along. He wrote, he, he sent Kubrick an, an initial screenplay of The Shining, and Kubrick was like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and they had a, a, a pretty testy back and forth until eventually they stopped communicating. And their relationship was so bad that Kubrick actually killed Stephen King in The, in the Shining. So uh, when, Haller, when, when Halloran's driving up back up to the mountain, and he's driving on a snowy road. He passes by a car wreck. And the car wreck involved an 18-wheeler and a red buggy, a beetle. And the beetle is completely destroyed by the 18-wheeler. And this, the reason why this is in the movie, because there's no need to put it into it plot-wise. Halloran, it's just a, a couple of frames and Halloran's driving by it. Nothing well, it could just be for the danger, but why the red buggy? Yeah, but why the red buggy? It's because... the. At this time, Stephen King drove a red buggy, and so Kubrick was like, "F you! I'm gonna kill you in my movie that of the book that you wrote." So it's pretty wild. That's how testy their relationship got. And so in the book, Jack is um, a lot more empathetic. He he is a a good father who's struggling with his inner demons, and then you know by the end of the book, he's actually trying to fight the possession that he's under. You know what I mean? Whereas in the movie. Jack just goes full psycho and never get and that never dissipates. He's just full on murder mode the whole time, and he actually it's not murder mode the whole time. Okay, it takes a little time to get there. Okay, it takes a little time to get there. And there's a point where he even tries he he sacrifices himself to save Danny's life at yeah. the end. End of the book. At, at the end of the book. And also another big change was the maze. The maze is not in the novel. What uh, what Stephen King wrote in the novel was these hedge animals. Like these giant bushes in the shapes of animals, and what happens when the sh- when the house is full on shining at the climax of the movie, the hedge animals come to life, and they attack the characters. And obviously, that would have been probably impossible to film to make it look good and believable. So Cuba came up with the idea of let's do let's replace the animals and we'll do a maze instead. So that's why there's a hedge maze in the movie. Yeah, again, if you're referring to the book to explain parts of the film. You're going to come up empty-handed because he took the basic story plot and the characters and ran with his own version of it again. I think that Kubrick was mostly leaving out the supernatural elements of The Shining from the book. And again, he wrote, to quote him, It's just the story of one man's family quietly going insane together. So I think there is an entire... How how sweet. There's an entire interpretation of this entire movie where supernatural doesn't exist. And... I think it's an interesting concept to think about because parts of it make me believe it. And I think that there's these great theories and interpretations that the the movie is mostly around an episode of sexual abuse or multiple vers- multiple episodes of sexual abuse of a father on a son, specifically really? Jack on Danny. So explain. So ex- I will explain I'm it. I'm curious. All right, that hold on. Really hold on. cool. All right, ready? I'm not cool, but like it's fascinating. Yeah, this is, this is going to get pretty dark, but it's going to blow your mind. So a lot of it has to do with the bear suit guy, the the at the end, yeah. yeah. So what's that called um, when people dress up like that? The fu- furries, yeah, yeah furries. furries. So there's that when the ghost starts shining, or the the hotel you could say starts shining, and and um, Wendy's running around with the knife, and she sees all these visions. She sees the man getting fellatio from the furry, the bear suit guy. So in the book, the guy in the tuxedo is actually this actually happens, but it's a dog suit. In the in the book, the guy in the tuxedo is the former owner 
of the Overlook Hotel, Horace Derwent, who also was a very eccentric bisexual and had these interesting parties. But the guy in the suit in the book is someone that he was basically dominating and humiliating, and he had him come to the Overlook in that dog costume and everything. And you can read more about what happens in the book. But in the film, uh, Kubrick changed it to a bear. And so the bear relates to possible sexual abuse from Jack on Danny, specifically in the imaginary room 237. So was Danny sexually abused by Jack? I think there is a lot of evidence in this film, which, again, I'm referring to collaborative learning here, where it backs the case up that that's what the film is solely about. And so there's the opening in the interview when Jack's waiting to be called into Omen's office. What kind of magazine is he reading? Playgirl. He's reading a Playgirl magazine. First of all, having a pornographic magazine at the hotel is odd, but, you know, Cooper put it there on purpose to show that he was probably some sort of, he was perverted in his mind to an extent to read a Playgirl magazine in public, but not even a Playboy, but it's a Playgirl, obviously alluding to bisexual or homosexual desires for sure. And then the opening of the film with Danny after he faints, there's the bear pillow that he's lying on. So he's being yeah. interviewed by the psychiatrist and there's this big bear face right next to him. It's for like the entire two minute shot. It's just this bear. And so why is that bear there? Does it refer to later on the bear or does the bear later on the man in the suit refer to Danny's sexual abuse, maybe in his bedroom with the bear being there. And so later on when Danny gets abused while at the hotel, you know, he has the, the bruises on his neck and that happens right after he talks to Jack. So Jack's in his room. He wakes up in his bed, and this is when he's almost fully gone completely insane in the film. And so Danny comes up to try to get, I think he asks to see if he can go in his room to get another sweater. Then him and Jack have that odd, eerie, fatherly son loving conversation on the bed, and Jack's talking to him and holding him and asking him all these intense questions. And Danny finish, like ends the conversation like, Dad, would you ever hurt Mommy or me? And then he's like, who would say that to you? But then it cuts to him downstairs and that's when Jack when Danny comes to Danny to Jack and Wendy with the bruises on his neck so you can assume, you can theorize that in that moment when it cut he sexually abused Danny there cuz Jack's the last person he was with exactly so the bruises had to have happened from Jack and if he's performing making Danny perform a specific type of sexual act on him that would make sense to have bruising on his neck if he's forcing him to do something like that and obviously alluding to the bear furry man giving fellatio to the man tuxedo so are these danny's coping mechanisms to deal especially the woman the old woman room 237 does room 237 even exist is it just a coping mechanism for him does danny like imagine it in his mind to go somewhere else when these things are happening because the layout's similar to the room that they live in even though it's a hotel so most of the rooms probably have a similar layout but it is very similar to the room they're in and then when jack goes into there is he having a hallucination as well or, or a nightmare of what, what he's been doing to his son with the sexual abuse? And then this is also being cross-cut with Danny brushing his teeth right after. So, so Jack's asleep and he's having that horrific nightmare. It's being cross-cut with Danny brushing his teeth, remember? So Danny's brushing his teeth. You can maybe assume Cooper is alluding to the fact that he's cleaning himself up from what he just had to do with his father. This is disgusting, but it's kind of blatant. And then the Apollo rocket sweater. Yeah, you could say maybe he's joking and, and like alluding to, oh, did I fake the moon landing? 
or you, it's a very if you look at the rocket, it's a very phallic symbol on his j- chest that's pointing up at Danny's face. That's crazy. So when you you look at all that stuff put together, it makes a lot of sense. Then even inside their hotel apartment, there are portraits of bears everywhere. Like even when Jack and Wendy are having a conversation about Danny, about if he should see a doctor soon or something like that, or, or one of those conversations in the hotel room, there are posters of of bears everywhere. No way. So I think I gotta look at this. Yeah, again. you gotta, you gotta check it out. But I think I think that you can look at this entire film as an episode of Cabin Fever. People going insane, but also sexual abuse at the same time. I always assumed that it was the old woman in 237 who made the bruises on his neck. But, I mean, that's a crazy way to look at it. But, again, this is why Stephen King hates this entire interpretation of his book is because he's basically stripped the possi- the, the supernatural out of it. Yeah, there are elements that it has to be supernatural. Like, how does Jack escape the storeroom? But there are also plenty of elements that can be explained by other things. Yeah, that's wild. That's That's crazy. Great job. Thanks, man. Well, again, I'm 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 referring to that other collective, channel. collative learning. Collative. Again, these this guy on there, I think his name's Roger Adger. He's got like a ton of videos, like tearing, like not like all all shining. He's got a ton on just the shining. Yeah, uh-huh. he's just been studying it for so long. And again, he's been it's not all done by himself. He's been using just the research of other people. Again, this is a a film that's still being studied four decades later. Every frame of it's being studied. It'd be impossible to like what for one person to like sit through the entire thing and not be Stanley Kubrick and not understand it all. And also, you need different minds to look at it in different ways. So he's he's actually his channel is great. He actually puts together all these compilations of different theories of the film. Very cool from everything he's found and everything he's discovered himself. But there there are more stuff unless you want to talk about something else. Well, yeah, there's this really cool thing that obsessive people have done where they have taken the entire film of The Shining and they have overlapped it over itself where one version is playing forwards and the other version is playing backwards. So it's it's overlapping. And you play it at the same exact time? You play time. it at the same time. So one reel is going end to, end to start and the other one is going start to end. And there's multiple moments when you watch this and there's um, highlights of it on, on YouTube. There's compilations of it. And it's really crazy when you see what images overlap with each other at certain moments. Like there's a, there's a moment when when Wendy's looking for Jack, um, she's carrying the baseball bat, baseball bat. She's really scared. And she's looking around and she's in the main room looking for him. Um, that over is overlapped with Jack in the first act throwing his tennis ball around inside the main room, and they're two. They're both their bodies completely overlap with one another, and it literally looks as though Jack is like punching her body because he's like throwing a tennis ball. It's and also it, interesting that it's a ball and a bat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's crazy. And then also there's another overlapping that's really interesting is um, Jack and Danny, when they have the conversation on the bed, and Jack's like holding him on his lap, and they have that tense, weird, but also kind of comforting conversation, that overlaps with Jack and Grady in the bathroom in the third act of the movie perfectly. And it's like when you watch it, both images, both characters in each situation are looking at each other. And it's just wild watching the conversation take place. Oh, I have to look this it's up. It's really That's fascinating. Insane. There's a bunch of other great things like um, like uh, Jack Nicholson's name um, in the opening credits. As it scrolls up in the opening, it, it scrolls over the photo of Jack at the end of the movie. Pretty cool. So it's you got to check it out. Just just Google it on YouTube or, or go on YouTube and search it. But it's really fascinating to see what kind of images and what moments 
overlap with one, with one another. And I'm sure he kept it in his mind to, as a balanced way of portraying the story, how the 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 literary, the structure of the story took place. Want to hear about another production design element that Kubrick used to maybe hint that there's no supernatural activity at all and the ghosts are fake? I would love to. How about we first talk about how if you're going to be stranded in a huge hotel by yourself for five months, secluded from the outside world, you better hope you have the Lamar 4.0 with from Manscaped because things are going to get out of control as you slip into insanity. Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer is now available using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. This grand, this brand new groomer is waterproof, skin safe, has a 7,000 RPM motor, wireless charger, built-in light. It's amazing. Fellas, get on manscaped.com. Get their products. Everyone listening, if you got a man in your life, you know what to get them. They're kind of, you know, lacking in some areas and they need to, you know, clean things up to make your life easier. Get them something from manscaped.com, specifically the Lawnmower 4.0 or the new Performance Package 4.0s using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. You get 20% off and free shipping. Get their weed whacker, their men's wipes, deodorizers, boxer briefs are super comfortable. I highly recommend all of their products. I have to tell you about movieposters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Use our promo code Raiders15OFF to get 15% off your order today. If you're going to order some movie posters, why not get a Shining poster? I mean, some of the most iconic posters ever made were the Shining posters, whether it be Jack looking through the the door that he burst through. Or, Which we replicated. Yeah, yeah, we actually made a duplicate of that. You can get on movieposters.com or, or the Saul Bass original. And movieposters.com has a massive selection of movies, pretty much every movie imaginable. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, whatever your poster needs are. Movieposters.com has got you covered. If you're looking at our set online, you'll see that it is covered with these amazing posters. The quality is top-notch. I couldn't recommend it enough. Again, head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our special promo code Raiders15OFF to get 15% off your order today. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see that I'm actually wearing my Jack Torrance blue flannel. It's actually pretty close to the one he pretty wears. Pretty close, yeah. yeah. I like it. Yeah, you look pretty out of your it's, mind right it's now. It's very cozy. All right. Y'all set? I want to hear this crazy thing. Okay, so every, again, this is going to be another example of Kubrick showing you that the supernatural elements of this film aren't really happening. So every time Jack is talking to a ghost or seems to be experiencing a duality of his personality, whether he's seeping into insanity, but whenever he's talking to like Grady, whenever he's talking to Lloyd, there's always either a mirror in front of him or a reflection. So there are mirrors all over this movie whenever Jackson scenes. Like a really great example is when he's in the bedroom um, talking to Wendy about, you know, everything's going. And, and then when Danny walks in the room, there's a mirror right there. So there, and there's another shot. And the shot when Wendy brings him breakfast, the opening of the shot is Kubrick filming the mirror. Yeah. And he so films the reflection. There are mirrors everywhere. So whenever Jack is talking to Lloyd at the bar, maybe there isn't a directly a mirror behind the bar but the surfaces of the walls behind Lloyd are for sure reflective and then when Jack is in the bathroom talking to Grady he's looking right at mirrors so he's really you could say he's always talking, talking to, to himself, himself rather than ghosts and you might say but Jim when he's in the storeroom and he's talking to Grady and Grady lets him out he's talking to the door you can't see a mirror anywhere well I will counter with when you look at the door it's metallic and reflective and it's a, a blurry image but you could assume that you could see yourself in it to some extent probably warped 
And even on that door, if you look closely, it isn't really metal. It has some sort of metal sheet taped to it. You can see the edges of the actual door. So Kubrick put that there on purpose to show that it's a reflective surface. Wow. That's crazy. Wow. He's always looking at mirrors. You're when he's talking right. To ghosts. So he's like in the bathroom, like literally just talking to his reflection. Yeah. And then he's just at an imaginary stool picturing a bar looking at himself talking to himself. And I'm sure the bar does have a mirror behind the bottles. Yeah. If not a mirror, most bars are just reflective yeah. behind. And again, if you believe in the supernatural stuff, go for it. I'm not trying to say what that this is right and that's wrong because that's what's great about this film. It's up to your interpretation. You can believe the supernatural stuff. You can believe it's all hallucinations and all not happening. You can believe whatever you want. That's what's so great about it. I don't care if you believe in all the supernatural stuff. I don't care if you think it's all. You fake. won't judge me. I won't judge you <laughs> at all. At all. So Unless my you say only question. Dumb. <laughs> my only question is, how did he get out of the storeroom then? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> I'm so glad. I have a whole section prepared for that. Let's hear it. So that is a big question. Besides the bear guy, <laughs> you look so excited. Yeah. I've never seen you that excited. So, Except for what do you say, Ben Affleck? <laughs> ben Affleck. <laughs> How does Jack get out of the storeroom if it's not supernatural? If it's not supernatural. So the first option is uh, it is supernatural. So that's the first theory, you know, because when he gets locked in there, he can't escape. Wendy locks him in. But then, you know, Delbert Grady's voice comes and he's like talking to him like they have to be dealt with. And the locks unhinge and he's like starts to smile. But the thing is, we never actually see him go through that door. Do you notice that? Yeah, we don't actually. The, see we him. never see the door open. We, even when he's looking at the door, and it just cuts away. And it's interesting when you watch the shot. The door open. The door unlocks. The door. You can hear it open, but the light on his face doesn't change. Nothing changes. So you can assume that the door didn't even open. That's kind of alluding to that it's all in his head. Um, but yeah, you can obviously. Say, oh, the hotel is possessing him. The hotel is a representation of great. Is using great as a representation, and they opened it. All right. Um, was there actually another door in the room? So, think back to the beginning of the film, the first time they're in the Overlook Hotel, I'm and thinking. Halloran is giving Wendy a tour of the kitchen area. And so they're walking down the hall, and this is right after they go in through the freezer. He shows them the freezer, they come out, and they get out of the freezer, and they start walking down the hall, and they take a right turn around a corner. But before they do that, they pass a door. They So they go out of the freezer, they walk down the hall, they pass a door, and then immediately there's a corner. They take a right at the corner, and he opens the next door right there. Into the pantry. Into the pantry, into the storeroom. So if you look at the door that they passed, and then you look inside the storeroom, it has to fit in there. So there has to be another door on the side of the wall, but it's behind the shelves. So the POV shot looking at the open door, the shelf on the wall on the left, there has to be a door there because otherwise it wouldn't make sense for that door to be there in the hallway because it's it's right there. It's like not even 10 feet away from the corner of that wall, which is the storeroom. And so then there's the shot of Jack when he's holding that the door handle. And you can see the shelf behind him. There's a little reflection of like a metal handle that could be a door behind there. No way. There could be a door. So it, was there another door behind there? That's an option. The handle that Jack is holding. So generally that is, you know, the, it's this long slender handle with like a flat flat tip you know and then actually i've read that that's an, a safety release handle specifically designed most importantly for freezers so earlier in the film again when halloran shows in the freezer the freezer has the same exact kind of handle that long thin like like rod like handle which is a safety release because if you get trapped inside a freezer you would freeze to death within hours probably and you need some sort of safety release to get out of there in case you accidentally get trapped. So that's what that is. Of course, 
the storeroom door has the double locks that we watch Wendy lock. So maybe the safety release wouldn't be able to work with those locks in there. But it's, it's a safety release handle for sure. And also, why are there two sliding doors, sliding bolt locks on the other side of that door? It doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. Um, did Danny open it? Did Danny open it because he's afraid of his father? And maybe he thinks that something worse would happen to him if he doesn't let his father out? I don't know. I mean, he writes red rum. He's sort of in that trance. So he writes red rum, wakes his mom up, and that's when after Jack escapes. So Jack escapes somehow. He writes murder backwards, and then he's holding a knife. Is he kind of is Danny kind of losing his mind because of the abuse his father's laying on him? That he's like, I don't even, I don't even know what to do. Like, let's, let this guy go crazy. I don't know. Wow, that's the door one is crazy. If you watch when it, they walk past the door, I it's, think it's you're right. literally like it has to be in that room. Yeah. Is it would be physically impossible for it not to be there. Want to hear another crazy door thing? Yeah. S- speaking of the freezer. Okay. So when Halloran is showing Wendy the freezer, he opens the freezer door. And when he opens the door, it's a shot outside of the freezer. And he uses his left hand and the door opens to his left. So it opens like tilt left. But then we cut to a shot from inside the freezer looking at them coming in. And he's using his right hand to open the door and the door opens right. Mm. How the hell does that make sense? So this is another another example of Stanley Kubrick just messing with your head with the layout of the film, the blueprints of the doors and the the, the rooms and the sets, how none of it really makes sense. And there's just all these spatial discrepancies throughout the entire film that are impossible, like these impossible layouts, these spatial impossibilities. And he wanted to do it on, he did it on purpose. He wants you to kind of feel like things are off. Again, that's another great example of you're looking at something, a guy opening a door, it seemed, and he, you just watched it. Oh, it's just a guy opening a door, but like you're in your head, you're like, something's off about that. You just feel it. You, it's something d- deep down inside of you. He's like, that's some, some, some weird going on. He opened the door with different hands and it opens in different directions from either side. Wow. That's crazy. And th- also with the film, like the layout of the Overlook Hotel, hallways kind of come out of nowhere. You know, a great example is the iconic shot where. Omen is showing them like the great hall room. And so they're walking and there's that great tracking shot of them while they're walking along that large room. The big windows are behind them. And then the camera goes like inside that crevice into that inner hallway. And then they come out on the other side. So behind them, behind them during the tracking shot are just those big windows in a wall. But then when they come out from behind that crevice and we see them finally, other people come up from behind them from a hallway that can't exist. There's a there's people coming out of a hallway, but there's no hallway there. People have actually traced out the outline of the hotel based upon the scenes, and it's an impossibility. The, like the actual physical layout of what happens in the movie is impossible for the structure of the hotel physically. Yeah, many of the doors would lead to nowhere. They'd just be doors. Like spe- like when Danny's riding his tricycle big wheel down the hallways, <laughs> a lot of these doors, if you look at the blueprint, cannot exist. These There are no rooms behind them. And you could say like, oh, it's just a continuity error. It's just set design. They didn't even care. No, it's all done on purpose. And the production design, they confirmed that it was all done on purpose by Stanley Kubrick deliberately to disorient you as a viewer, to create this unsettling atmosphere and surreal place. Again, that makes you feel like you're watching it. It seems normal, but something's off. It works, man. It works. There's another great little detail of costume design in terms of Jack in the opening act. When Jack goes out for the interview with Ullman, and he's wearing a green wool tie, and if you zoom in on the tie, 
it looks exactly like the hedge maze if you're looking at it from a bird's eye view. It's uncanny how much it looks like just green hedges as, as a maze. And so he's already showing you a connection to the maze with Jack's first scene there. It's unbelievable the attention to detail. It's just with that tie. And this movie, it has just some of the most iconic scenes of all time. I mean, you have in imagery, you have the bloody elevator, you have the ghost twins in the hallway. And the ghost twins, Ullman says that they're aged 8 and 10 when he's telling Jack about it, the story. But they're twins in the scenes. Yeah, again, something that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. And he says, I have two daughters. Why wouldn't you say, we have a mother who has twins. She always says, I have two twin boys. Well, I have six boys, boys, but yeah. I have twin sons. Yeah. She's, Why wouldn't you say twin daughters? She always calls the twins. And then you get you get the, the red rum scene, the just Jack staring crazy off into in, at them and the hedge maze and then the infamous axe scene when he's hacking at the door. There's so many iconic moments of this movie and you combine that with the the attention to detail and the symbolism and the mystery around the entire movie and this really proves why the movie has lived on so long in the zeitgeist. Why so many people obsess over it or find the movie just endlessly fascinating and, and rewatchable. I've seen this movie Probably 30 times. Yeah, we watched this a lot when we were kids. <laughs> we watched it all the time when we were younger. <laughs> and it's a movie that I think a lot of people have watched a ton. And people always say, like, what's the best horror movie of all time? And it has to be The Shining. It has to be. It's up there. Like, I, I would, I'd put it my favorite for sure. But, you know, it's a subjective thing. Yeah, yeah, it is subjective. Have, have you seen the documentary that his daughter shot, right? This daughter film? I don't think so. Vivian Kubrick filmed all this, like, footage of behind the scenes of the making of the of the shining and there's there's footage of Jack pumping himself up for oh, the I've axe. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen those clips. He's like jumping up and down. He's like I'm an axe murderer. I'm an axe murderer. And he they the set actually built all these prop doors for him to ba- to break because they they would be easy to break rather than a real wooden door. But he actually Jack Nicholson was actually a volunteer fire marshal for his uh, first county and so he had experience with it and so he destroyed the the prop doors like super easily and it looked super fake. So then they had to get real doors for him to break down. And that scene, they f- spent three days filming that scene of him tearing down the doors with the axe. That's crazy. Because Kubrick is so such a perfectionist. Just him bashing the door, they filmed over and over and over again. And Jack Nicholson ended up destroying over 60 doors. <laughs> 60 doors? <laughs> that sounds exhausting. Yeah. But that's one of my favorite shots of the movie. It could be my favorite shot is when Wendy's in the bathroom and she's just got that knife and she's standing in the tub against the wall and you know she's in the corner and she's just screaming and then Jack is bashing at the door with the axe and then and then eventually the axe breaks through the door and it's in the foreground in front of Wendy and out of focus and then you just see the axe over and over again just bashing and it's it cover it like blocks her from the frame over and over again like it's actually hitting her. I think it's the best shot of the movie, possibly. Yeah, it might be the most iconic, obviously, of him bashing into the door and saying, "Here's Johnny." You know, it's it's Jack being a crazy man. Everyone <laughs> everyone loves that scene. I just love the look he gives them when they're on the hedge maze. And he's just like, just staring at them. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So so now that we've gone through a lot of it, do you do you still fully buy the supernatural, or do you think that Kubrick is alluding to the supernatural not being real in this film? I still like to view it as supernatural. It's fun. It's it's more fun that way. And I think that Kubrick put all the other stuff in it to just make you think about it and to upset and question it. 
And I think that's the whole point of it. So he, because he put things in it that make you think both ways, and make you question whether it's real or whether it wasn't real. Yeah, and you can go either way. If that act scene's your favorite moment of the film, probably, or your favorite scene, I would say that mine has to be the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That is insane. Like the first time I saw that, blew my mind. It still blows my mind because you know. Jack seems like he's writing a book the whole film. Again, he's like got this ambiguous nature. And even after that argument he gets in Wendy, he's like, when you hear me in here and you hear me typing, he even like, go, you don't hear me. He goes back to work and he's just like, all right, I'm going back to typing. He's just like, oh, he's working hard, but he's also an asshole to his wife, which is terrible. But he seems to be working hard on his book and he tells Danny, he's like, ah, I got too much work to do. I can't go to sleep. And he, he seems so busy and he seems so motivated in a way to write this book. You know, I'm outlining a new writing project. So five months of pieces is all I need. It's what I want. And then, when, and then when Wendy shows up to the desk and she's going through thousands of pages and it all says the same thing. And then Jack's figure just starts to creep in behind her and the music starts to pump up. He's like, you like it? <laughs> he says, how do you like it? How do you like it? <laughs> it's insane. I think that's the scariest part of the movie when she sees what he's been writing. And he's not just writing it over and over again, but he's doing it in different designs and outweight and outlines and yeah. stuff. And and it's just it's one of the best parts of directing where Kubrick he does this wide shot from behind Wendy as she's looking at the desk. And then Jack comes into frame. He's it's from behind the camera. And it's the perfect way to introduce a villainous character into a frame and into a scene. It also shows that since day one, Jack Torrance has been completely out of his mind and probably trying to get the courage in his psychotic mind to kill his family. Yeah. You know, it's probably been on the back of his head. Like I'm saying, that car right up, he's like, I I, I want to kill them too. They won't shut the fuck up. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you should have <laughs> ate your breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You do get crazy eyes. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so it just shows how insane he is, but I think that's my favorite scene in the entire movie. And then the bat scene is iconic, obviously, as well. Yeah, poor Shelley Duvall. They had to film that bat scene like a hundred times of her just like manically crying and, and backing up those steps over and over again until Kubrick was satisfied. Yeah, and I know I've read stories and articles of her, of people saying that Kubrick basically emotionally broke her down throughout the filming to make her more, you know, terrified in her performance and and independent, I think, yeah. So I obviously there's, that, there's footage of it in the documentary. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty rough for an actor to go through. I'm sure it did. You could argue get a better performance out of her. Maybe something that she a person couldn't pull out if they weren't being berated by somebody constantly. I wouldn't say that it's a, a good thing to do. That it should be happening on movie sets at all. No, I don't, it's it's not not I, okay. I, at all. I wouldn't condone yeah. that at all. Like there's footage of him saying, um, telling the crew. Don't 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 make her feel better. Like don't empathize with her. Like it's not good for her. Don't don't talk. Don't try to make her feel better. Yeah. So it seems like he's one of those creators and directors who just really only cares about the performance rather than the human being. Yeah. And Jack Nicholson even said um, in an interview years later that Shelley Duvall's performance was the hardest role that he's ever had ever seen any actor have to do was her performance, and she nailed it. I think. But so, she's uh, terrific. But clearly, if Jack Nicholson said that of all the movies he's worked on. Of all the great actors he's worked he's worked with, if he says that's the toughest role he's ever seen an actor do, I mean, kudos to Shelley Duvall for pulling it off. I'm sure, yeah, for a, a year just being berated on set. Yes, yeah. and also just like lot. she has to do so much crying and hysterics, and to do that over like just factor in the number of takes Kubrick's having you do 
and you have to keep crying. You have to keep have that energy. And she actually, she kept getting dehydrated because she was crying so she had to cry so much that it was it was a struggle to just keep drinking water to keep herself hydrated because she just kept pouring it out of her. Yeah, because if you're shooting the baseball bat scene a hundred times, that's a long scene. Yeah, there's a lot of tears coming out, and she yeah. has to act hysterically for the entire time. So it's, it's a lot of energy being drained out of you. Yeah, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your effing head in. I'm just gonna bash your brains. I'm just in. gonna bash it the effing. <laughs> Jack is the only person who could have pulled this off. I think Jim Carrey could have done it. Yeah, but Jim Carrey was like five. <laughs> was he 1980? Oh, he's like he's probably like 15. Maybe. Yeah, he was well, too I think young. I just think that because I've seen people do the deep fake of Jim Carrey's face onto him. Yeah. yeah I mean, you're right. Jack. I mean, Jim Carrey could have probably pulled it off for sure, but I mean, Jack. Would he do a role like this? Probably not. Nah, probably not. But. The way Jack just did it, I mean, he's so believable as someone who's just gone completely insane. There's just something about him. He has that, like, dangerous na nature about him where, like, you, he looks like he can just be set off and that unhinged quality. I think it has to do a lot to do with, like, he's got those infamous eyebrows that look like they're demonic, you know what I mean? The way they just point upwards and downwards. Like, like, you don't know anyone who has eyebrows like that, you know what I mean? Just so infamous. And the way he can move his face and... Just the looks he has, the stares. I, I, no one could have done what he did in this movie. He's he, perfect. He does this, do, the Kubrick stare better than everybody. Exactly. You see it in A Clockwork Orange, that famous stare. Speaking of A Clockwork Orange, you could you could argue that one of the main differences that Kubrick did from the book with the character Jack Torrance is he made him very similar to Alex in A Clockwork Orange and even Hal in 2001 Space Odyssey. He's probably more... Uh, comparable to them two rather than the actual Jack Torrance from the novel. Much more sinister. Yeah, sinister and, and like emotional intentions yeah. and, you know, yeah, human, humanless, you could say. Because he does show, he doesn't really show any empathy for anyone at all in any point of the movie. Just for himself. Even in the beginning. He just wants empathy from her. Yeah. Have you ever thought about me and my, <laughs> my duties to my employer? I signed a contract. contract. <laughs> <laughs> we could quote this movie. It's crazy. Even though that's a little off. Yeah, it what wasn't 100%. What else are we going to talk about? Hmm. I feel like we've covered quite a lot. And I mean, I'm sure everyone's seen this a dozen times. Yeah, I mean, I'm really happy with how we approached it. Me too. Rather than talking about the plot. Yeah, this because really I think, the, I think the, the plot's great, obviously. But, but everyone's it, seen it. But there's so much to talk about, not including the actual film itself, but mm -hmm. the production itself and the hidden things inside of it. And, you know, unfortunately, murder does occur in the hotel when Halloran comes to it's try to fake, see what's though, going it's okay. on. Huh? <laughs> so it's fake, though. It's okay. No, in the film. Because <laughs> he said, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, like, he actually... Sorry actually, to say, but... He was a method. Someone <laughs> did die in the movie. <laughs> Red was Rum a, was, was a great committed. Law. It was a Red terrible loss. Red Rum was, was committed uh, when Halloran comes to save him. And he just gets axed in the chest, which is insane. That's actually what causes the hotel to... That's I think that's because I believe it's supernatural. That's why Wendy's able to see all the ghosts because she doesn't shine. She's not a shiner. But then in that sequence, she can see all these ghosts and all this crazy stuff. It's because the hotel, it's always hungry for new blood. Basically like a human sacrifice to keep its power and its ability to shine. And so when there's a fresh kill in the hotel, its power gets rejuvenated. And so that's why Wendy's able to see the ghosts. Sounds like you've done this before. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Or, non-supernatural, she's hallucinating things. You know, cabin fever, maybe they've all been there for six months. We don't know how long it's been. 
and they're all going crazy and they're all seeing things coping mechanisms it's possible they're all they're both possibilities it's which possible. is so fun to talk about it's super fun we actually got a bunch of questions about oh, the cool. film so i actually asked in, um instagram our followers what their top questions were of the shining so i figured i'd pull them up and we could go through some of them i would love to do that all right these are our questions about the shining from instagram followers m frank leo m, m frank low how did he escape from the meat locker? It's the storage container. The but um we we did our five yeah, theories on that. Yeah. Um Nathan's, what did you think of the shining scenes in Ready Player One? That was my favorite part about the movie and the book too. I thought it was so, so fun. The recreation of it digitally was epic and yeah. it, it was so much it was a great time to just watch them be in there and how cool is that still relevant in pop culture yeah it was such a great nostalgic throwback in the music and then it was actually pretty funny too when she's like drowning in the in the blood it's and they grab her it was, <laughs> it was a great great sequence all right it was my favorite part of this yeah. of the movie as well e herbert why was he in the picture frame at the movie at the end of the movie so i explained that when i said that he was actually Grady in a past life and reincarnated as Jack Torrance, so he was actually the caretaker physically in the 20s as yeah, well. Yeah, I agree. He's a reincarnation, you could say. Mm-hmm. I, even if you don't believe in the supernatural, you can still believe in that, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Which is interesting because Kubrick's a, an atheist, but he still has supernatural reincarnation qualities, or not supernatural, but the idea of reincarnation or life after death in the film, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, Gabriel Gabriel Townsend, I'm really only confused about the Blair, the Bear BJ scene, which we discussed. I think that yeah, you explained. I that. think the sexual assault is the sexual abuse is the explanation for the bear scene. In the book, it's different. It's an actual. It actually happened, and it shines because so, it's a past memory in the hotel. Yeah, it's it's a, so basically to, the supernatural explanation is is it's the hotel is displaying memories from its past. Yeah, but the movie, I think it's what we talked about. It's a representation of Danny coping with the sexual abuse from his father. Hence the bears everywhere. Um, let's see. Grayson Younts, what is your guys' favorite theories on the film minus the Apollo landing one? I think that's a fun one, but I don't think, I don't believe in that at all. I think we've been to the moon plenty of times, but it's still a fun theory. My favorite theory is that Jack was Grady. That's my favorite one. All right. How did Jack get out of the pantry thing? Talked about that. Oh, this is actually an interesting one. This is from Rene Moreno. I think he was a dry drunk because he was showing symptoms. That's why he was crazy. So a dry drunk, is that someone who's sober but experiencing hallucinations and stuff like that? I don't know. Dry drunk. Is that someone who hides that they're drinking? No, because dry still insinuates that you're sober. Right. I well, think that's what that is. Is because you're it. because you're sober, and you're maybe you're craving alcohol so bad, you're craving the drug so bad that um you're hallucinating and seeing things. Okay, so a dry drunk is the slang term for a person who has stopped drinking alcohol but still acts impulsively, behaves in dis- dysfunctional ways, and makes risky decisions associated with addiction. So this uh. Signs of dry drunk syndrome can include dishonesty, isolation, depression, anxiety, and glamorizing alcohol use. Gotcha. So yeah, definitely. Renee's correct. All right. Visionary Capital Ventures. What was it really the hotel that made him that way? Again, you can look at it both ways. You can look at it as 
complete possession by the hotel breaking him down, or you can look at it as all practical explanations. Jack was already insane when he got to the hotel. It really just took cabin fever involved with him just being bored and losing his mind, being around his family, to make him finally want to kill them. I think it's a combination of forced sobriety with possession from the hotel, which caused him to become like that. All right, Liam Carter, how different is Kubrick's adaptation compared to the original book? Again, very different. Yeah, we explained that a a lot. Again, don't try to... uh, Explain things about the movie from the book. Totally different. Yeah. Um, let's see. Comedian James Maine. Was the kid going crazy too, or are the ghosts real? I thought it was about Jack going nuts and killing. See, I, I think it's about Jack mostly going insane and everyone hallucinating and coping and dealing with trauma and uh, cabin fever. It's intense. It's pretty wild. I'm the opposite. Hey, we found a movie we disagree on. It's not that I don't believe in the supernatural stuff. I think it's fun to think about, but I think when you look at all the evidence... It could go either way. So you're my competitor. <laughs> Amanda Grace, where did they get all their cool clothes? I don't know. Maybe we'll have to The 70s at... were had cool style. 70s, man. <laughs> um, Cooper Austin, why did Kubrick make his adaptation so much different than the novel? I think Kubrick's just fascinated by telling interesting stories, and he probably got this wild idea of, I'm sure he read the book, and then he thought, like, the book's cool, but what if he did it like this? Yeah. He threw, he just do, did his own thing with it. I think it's... Also, with him being an atheist and not believing in supernatural, that I'm going to tell the story, but I'm going to strip it of that and just tell it about uh, psychological terror. Yeah, whereas like A Clockwork Orange is a, is a very faithful adaptation of that book. Let's see. Some more questions about the bear, which we answered quite a bit. All right. JMD218. If Jack was the one who killed his family, how did he hear of the rumor? So if Jack was the was Grady. So again, it's the reincarnation of himself. But um, Ullman said the rumor in the office during the interview. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what exactly does the title mean? Caitlin Signorelli. That is referring to Shining, so the ability that Danny and Halloran have and how they can shine yeah. with the hotel. So supernatural insight. They can see ghosts. They can see the future. They can communicate with the past and the future. Memories. And memories. And they can also communicate with other people who shine without speaking. Zara Matt, was he imagining the bartender? Again, supernatural. Is he seeing ghosts or is he talking to himself in the reflection? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Pete Snyder, how does it end? I've never seen it. <laughs> Watch it, man. <laughs> oh, man. How old were we when we saw The Shining and how much did you like it from Sam? Um, I honestly don't remember the we first were, time I saw it. I know it. we were young. We had to have been kids. I know we were young and I didn't understand it for a very long time. Sunday morning, darling. Do either of you like the made-for-TV movie? I actually haven't seen it, but I'm curious I to watch it. it. Yeah. I definitely want to check it out. I remember seeing it at on VHS at Blockbuster. <laughs> Blockbuster. <laughs> the old stomping grounds. All right. Did Stanley Kubrick actually abuse Shelley Duvall? This is from Eli Behrman. Um, I don't. I've never read anything about physical abuse, but I think it's just more about emotionally breaking her down. Yeah, I think he he emotionally abused her. I would say. Olivia Pacini, book or movie? Movie, 100%. The book is cool. It's a good read. It's a good read, but the book, yeah, Yeah. it's Kubrick. Come on. Um, User 6777. Why is it so drawn out? Could have been shorter. (laughs) Hey, man. It's a mood. Mood and tension. You like what you like, but we really like these long, slow burn films when they're done right, like The Shining. Yeah. All right. Oh, this is a great one. Henry E. What do you guys think about the paintings in Mr. Halloran's room? They're great. They're of the, um, the... (laughs) <laughs> the the nude black woman. Oh, yeah. With, with the afro. Oh, man. Yeah. I like his style. He's <laughs> a cool guy. <laughs> there's, just, there's one above his bed and then one on the wall above the TV. He's clearly not bringing any women over anytime <laughs> soon. All right. Um, 
Oh, Mayo Cruz Wayne. Who rolled the tennis ball to Danny? Oh, that's a great question because if it's not practically explained, was it supernatural ghosts? I would say it was the twins. Could have Because they wanted him to play with them. Yeah, well, that's a supernatural explanation. Come play with us. Maybe it was his father. Maybe yeah. his father was like, hey, come play with me, Danny. Yeah. And he just used the, the goat. Maybe he used the girls as a way to look at his father but not see his father, but to cope with that. Mm-hmm. Just like the old lady, he created the old lady to cope with the fact that it could have been his, maybe it was his father. He didn't want to have to admit to himself that it was his father. Messed up. <laughs> um, I think that's about, hold on, let's see. Blah, 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 blah. Why didn't Batman come and save the Overlook from the Joker? <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's all the questions we got. Thanks for the questions, everyone. Yeah, those are awesome. Those are good. Lots of bare ones. Want to move on to some trivia? Let's do it. To get Jack Nicholson into the right agitated mood, he was fed only cheese sandwiches for two straight weeks, which he hates. Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall have expressed open resentment against the reception of this film, feeling that critics and audiences credited Stanley Kubrick solely for the film's success without considering the efforts of the actors, crew, or strength of Stephen King's underlying material. Nicholson and Duvall have said that the film was one of the hardest of their careers. In fact, like Anthony said, Nicholson considers Duvall's performance the most difficult role he's ever seen an actress take on. There were so many changes to the script during shooting that Jack Nicholson claimed that he had stopped reading them. Instead, he would only read the new pages in the morning that were given to him. Stanley Kubrick, known for his compulsiveness and numerous takes, got the difficult shot of blood pouring from the elevators in only three takes. This would be unremarkable if it weren't for the fact that the shot took nine days to set up each time. Every time the doors opened and the blood poured out, Kubrick would say, it doesn't look like blood. In the end, the shot took approximately a year to get right. In the blood in the elevator is another example of just like, it's not in the book. But Kubrick being the visual genius, like, he's new. He's like, I need this in the movie to work. Tony Burton, who had a brief role as Larry, the garage owner, arrived on set one day carrying a chess set in hopes of getting in a game with someone during a break from filming. Stanley Kubrick, an avid chess player who had in his youth played for money, noticed the chess set. And despite production being well behind schedule, Kubrick proceeded to call off filming for the day so that he could play Burton in a set of chess games. Burton only managed to win one game against Kubrick, but Kubrick nevertheless thanked him since it had been some time since he'd played against a challenging opponent. Angelica Houston and Jack Nicholson were former partners and lived together during the time of shooting The Shining. She recalled that due to the long hours on set and Stanley Kubrick's trademark style of repetitive takes, Nicholson would often return from a day shooting, walk straight to the bed, collapse onto it, and would immediately fall asleep. During the extremely difficult process of filming The Shining, Shelley Duvall suffered nervous suffered from nervous exhaustion throughout filming. She it this included physical illness and even hair loss. I'm done with my trivia. The only shot in the film, The Shining, that was not achieved in camera was the slow-mo zoom 
in on the model of the maze with the tiny figures of Danny and Wendy walking around at the center. To achieve this shot, a model of the maze was shot from six feet above. Then the small central section of the maze was built to scale next to an apartment complex. Shelley Duvall and Danny Lloyd then walked about in the central section while the camera crew filmed it from the roof of the apartment building. The two shots were then simply composited together. Great shot. All right, who's your MVP? My MVP? I mean, it's got to... Oh, it's tough. Um, I'm going to go with Kubrick. I mean, the genius of his interpretation of the novel is just astounding. Yeah, same. And Kubrick. everything he did in the film, that just still blows my mind, and people are still studying to this day. Mm -hmm. You could probably teach a, an entire semester in college on The Shining. That'd be a cool class. We should, we should do that. Yeah. Cool. Who's the best actor? Jack. Jack. Jack it is. Best shot. Best shot in the film. I would say mine is the one I mentioned earlier, the axe shot where the axe penetrates the wall in the foreground with Wendy in the background screaming. That's a pretty good one. I think <laughs> I love when Jack freezes in the in the maze. That's <laughs> great. It's it's pretty pretty messed up, but just like him frozen then the next morning. Yeah. Which someone asked us how in in the Instagram questions, how come Jack froze in the maze when he was chasing Danny, but Danny didn't freeze. So Danny again outsmarts Jack in the maze by retracing his steps backwards and then covering up where he ran, so which caused Jack to get lost and disoriented, and then combine that with the with the extreme freezing temperatures and the storm that's going on. Exhaustion. Exhaustion yeah. was getting to Jack later in, later while he's chasing Danny down the maze, and he can barely even breathe, he can barely even talk, and he can't stand. And then we can assume he just had an agonizing last hours of death as he froze to death in the maze sitting up. So yeah, well explained. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. But the cross cut from the, the nighttime of him like, barely be able be able to stand up and then just frozen it's awesome. pretty great awesome all right what's next for superlatives that's it all right cool well i think that wraps our episode on the shining, wow everybody. we did the shining i still feel like we're missing so much and we could have talked about a lot more but I, I think the way we approached it was unorthodox on purpose because we wanted to be fresh yeah it, it's, it's we I think wanted we, to surprise y'all we wanted to everyone we've all seen it we've all seen it a dozen times probably we, we could have done the normal thing but i think it was fun to just go into the elements of the film and the yeah. production everything kubrick meant for you to see and not see though and it was just a lot of fun to talk about i think you, it was man. a good one that was a blast it was great we blew each other's minds a few times that was, that was a good time we hope it blew your minds become a patron today at patreon.com slash raiders of lost podcast so that james can quit his job thank you so much for tuning in around the world everybody we appreciate you so much. Bye, everyone. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.